0: Our animals are communicating to us all the time and we're also communicating to our animals all the time. That doesn't mean that the messages are always coming through on the other end. And so when there's kind of an interruption in that communication line, that's when problems happen.
1: I don't like to argue, so I say nothing and fume for days. How do I set boundaries without sounding like a jerk? I hate the idea that I might accidentally offend somebody, so sometimes I'd
0: just rather say nothing at all.
1: Welcome to the Language Alchemy Podcast, and thank you for joining me today. This is your host, Alejandra Siroca, a transformative communication teacher and coach devoted to helping you have more peace and more harmony in all your relationships. Today, I have a special guest for you, someone who's very dear to my heart. Their name is Shannon Bolt. Shannon and I have been working for years. Shannon, you've come to my workshops, retreats, and we've known each other over the years pretty well. Yeah. And I have learned so much about Shannon, which is why I wanted to have them in the Language Alchemy podcast. Shannon is an owner and operator of an animal care business specializing in cats and dogs with behavior needs. During the years that I have known Shannon, I think that they've learned a lot about communication from me, but I've learned so much about communication with my own animals from Shannon that I have a deep appreciation for what you do, Shannon. So welcome to the Language Alchemy Podcast.
0: Well, thank you so much, Alejandra. The admiration is certainly mutual. So thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for saying yes. First of all, I know what you do, but can you share and explain a little bit more about what you do? Absolutely.
0: I provide a variety of personalized custom services for families in San Francisco who have pets. And I also provide consulting services for people outside of San Francisco as well who are having any a wide variety of challenges with their pets. I particularly care for animals with fear and aggression issues or any kind of what we call reactivity, which is a term commonly used for certain types of dog behavior. And I call my business the domestic animal. I call it that because my goal is even though we're living with domesticated animals, primarily, we're in a domestic environment. And so my mission is to help households live harmoniously in this domestic environment, which is not always the environment that the animals that we acquire were actually bred to be in. And so it can create unique challenges. And so just just how humans often need help figuring out how to live their best lives. Humans often need help helping their animals figure out how to lead their best lives and feel as happy and content and safe as possible in this, especially San Francisco, this chaotic urban environment.
1: And a lot of what you do is that you in a way, teach people how to create these transitions and how to communicate with animals, how to have empathy for them, how to understand them. Can you tell us a little bit about what are some of the things that we tend to do with animals that may not be very helpful?
0: Well, the first one is we make a lot of assumptions. We tend to make a lot of assumptions about why animals are behaving in the way they are. And the second thing we do once we make an assumption is we we do a lot of projecting. We do a lot of projecting about the human experience onto our animals and our personal experiences. So where we come from as an individual we project our own experiences onto the animals. And this often leads to a big disconnect between ourselves and our animals because we think something is happening and, and we then try to tr- impact it in the way that might be effective for us as individual humans, or the way we think it might work for another human. And the animals are perceiving things and perceiving that intervention in a very, very different way. And so then everybody gets frustrated. The bond between the animals and the humans is often damaged, and Mm -hmm. all parties involved can feel less safe as a result, because what's fundamentally happening is a miscommunication. And without the assistance of language, Right. Our animals don't have language. And so it makes it very hard for us to clarify to our animals what we think is happening and what we mean to communicate to them and, and how we are interpreting their communication as well. Our animals are communicating to us all the time and we're also communicating to our animals all the time. That doesn't mean that the messages are always coming through on the other end. And so when there's kind of an interruption in that communication line, that's when problems happen, when struggles happen, when challenges happen. And I see myself as kind of a translator helping animals overcome their communication barriers and helping the humans overcome their language barriers, because humans are so reliant on language. We often take for granted the other ways in which we communicate and don't think about it. And so I often say that training for animals is really a way of overcoming a language barrier. Animals are speaking in a different way
1: that doesn't involve language. Thank you for that. I usually go to a park near my house and there are lots of dogs and their owners there. And when you were talking about, well, the first thing we do is we make assumptions and then we make projections. It, it immediately brought to mind a dog owner who tells her dog, we talk about this in the car. You are not going to do this this time. And, you know, throws the ball or something and the, the dog runs away in the opposite direction. And then she yells at the dog, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me?
0: Yeah, it's very, very common. I see that a lot in a lot of different contexts. It's funny when I see those scenarios, right? Because one of the things I've learned from you is it's not necessarily my place to just go up to a stranger and start educating them about (laughs) how they're doing it wrong, you know, or how how they're maybe not doing it wrong, but like what they're doing isn't effective. And there may there's a more effective way of of achieving their goal. So I have to kind of put my own muzzle on, if you will, uh, pun intended, Mm -hmm. and just let them have their experience. And sometimes the owners are doing that because some of them, I think, really think that they are having a conversation with their animal and that their dog understands their language. And then I think another set of people are doing it for appearances. They're embarrassed. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to communicate to the people around them who might be watching them that they don't approve of this misbehavior either. And then the final way that I think a lot of people engage in this behavior is it's a coping mechanism for their own frustration with themselves. They're at a loss for how to get different results. And the only way they know how to cope with what's going on is this kind of almost cartoonish narration dialogue thing happening. It's a very common phenomenon. And for any listeners who engage in this, I'm sure I do it as well. You know, the animals just not doing what we want them to do, what we expect them to do, what we think we have communicated to them that we want them to do and that we think they should want to do.
1: And kind of like what you're saying is we do to animals what we do with people, right? We make assumptions, Mm -hmm. we make projections. Uh, We say things out loud so that others can get us, give us empathy to show that maybe we're embarrassed, but hey, I don't approve of this behavior either. So you're talking about miscommunication and communication breakdown between humans and animals. And I wonder if you can give us an example. I know you have so many of them, but can you give us an example of kind of like a classic miscommunication that we have with animals and how you work with that
0: the thing that i often hear from clients is my dog knows not to do that my cat knows they're not allowed on that surface and the first thing that i think is well do they because if they if they knew that they were not supposed to do that they wouldn't be doing it right This comes into another ways that we project on animals, which is we project morality onto animals. We project our morality on animals. Now, this is morality in animals is something that's still being studied by science. There are some studies showing that, in fact, animals may have morality. The thing is, though, is that their morality for any given species or for any given individual animal probably doesn't match ours. So... Just as humans don't have universal morality, you know, even if animals are moral beings, it's very unlikely that their morality matches our morality. So that's, you know, one of the first problems. And then this goes back to this assumption I have adequately communicated my desires to my animals. And then the moral side is because I've adequately communicated my desire to my animals. They will want to do what I want them to do because ultimately what it comes down to is we think they should want to do what I want them to do because either they love me and I love them. That's one. Or because they owe me like Mm. I feed them. I shelter them. I give them veterinary care. They should want to do what I want them to do. And. A lot of this happens because of our over-reliance on language. So like that woman that you hear in the park, right? She had a whole conversation with her dog. She gave her dog a TED Talk, you know? (laughs) And because she gave that lecture to her dog, well, clearly her dog should know what she wants, because of this over-reliance on language as a way of communicating to our animals, then we don't realize that the message isn't being received. And so then when there's a breakdown like that, just it's con- then confusing to us. Like, what do we need to do different? The way to bridge the language barrier with animals is primarily through consequences animals like humans are functional in their behavior primarily right so our behaviors serve functions like one of the things that i've learned from you right it's like we've developed we develop these behavior patterns because at one point they worked for us they may have become maladaptive over the years but at one point they worked and served a function for us right And so animals are the same way. And so they're going to continue to engage in behavior that works for them. And their genetics are also going to tell them which behavior is most likely to work. So they're going to rely on their genetics for the first kind of driver. And then they're going to rely on their environment to see how their environment reacts. And we humans are essentially part of the animal's environment. And so when they're learning about which behaviors work, What's the feedback that we're giving them? This is another way that communication breaks down. We think that by yelling at our animals that they're being bad, that that's an effective, right? That that our animals don't want to hear that from us. And so that's an effective consequence. And that consequence just doesn't land for animals the same way that it might if we were communicating to an animal with language, right? They don't perceive our judgment and disapproval necessarily in the same way that another human might. So that's not to say that they don't sense it. They don't necessarily know what to do with that feedback. And another thing is that when we're only telling our animals what we don't want them to do, they don't know what we want them to do instead. And so we're not helping them understand the other options. So we have to figure out a better way to communicate to the animal what do we want to see and create the parameters that allow that behavior to be successful and then give them something that makes that behavior worth their while. Mm -hmm. Because if that's the feedback that they're learning what we want from, they're not altruistic. They're not going to do the behavior. And that's, you know, common mythology that we have with dogs, right, is like, Oh, they're so eager to please. And it's not that that's not true. It's just that it only gets you so far. It is widely variable. Like some dogs are not eager to please. Like that's not something that motivates them. Your approval, your enjoyment, they don't care, you know? And so what does an animal care about? And this varies greatly, just like with humans. It varies greatly from between each individual animal, And so we have to find out what's valuable to that animal and what can I use to communicate what I want based on what the animal also wants. Right. Mm -hmm. And so kind of finding that delicate balance. And it's not always easy to find those things. Cats are notorious in this regard. Right. Like, what do I have that a cat wants? And that's often why people just kind of give up with cats. They're just like, you know, my my cat is the ruler of the domain because I I don't have anything to offer them. It's not impossible. And often we have to start looking at the environment in different ways, start looking to our animals for the clues about what is meaningful for them and what motivates them.
1: Yeah. I love hearing this to consider ourselves as the environment. Mm hmm the animal. I think that a lot of us who have animals consider ourselves the parents, the owners, but not the environment. I think it requires more humility to consider ourselves part of the environment. And what I'm also hearing from you is the power of observation, really observing what is it that that animal needs or wants that may be completely different from what we want. Or need. I have two cats, as you know, and I would love both of my cats to play with me every time I want to play with them. Uh, no, that doesn't happen, especially with one of them. One of them wants to play all the time when I'm working, when I'm not in the mood or I can't be playing, and the other rarely wants to play. And I had to learn to observe them and see, okay, I can't behave with both of them in the same way because they have different needs. You were talking about consequences, and I'm very curious about this. What are some ways in which we can give animals respectful consequences, or what are some of the consequences that are useful for them to learn some behavior, say, not to get on a counter, not to pee inside your shoes or something like that. Yeah.
0: First of all, when we think about in our human, in our kind of everyday language, when we think about consequences, I think that usually has like a like a punitive connotation or a disciplinarian connotation. And so when I talk about consequences, I'm also talking about good consequences. In fact, I'm primarily talking about good consequences or what we might think of as appetitive consequences, right? Things that we want. And I think that this is another mistake that we make as humans that we think that consequences happen in response to the bad thing. And so it's a bad thing that that happens as a result of the unwanted behavior. If we can turn our attention more towards all of the good things that we dole out to our animals throughout the day that they like? And can we start making relationships between behavior that they display that we like and the things that we give to them that they like? That pairing will increase future behavior in the direction that we like it. And that doesn't mean that we have to withhold it for only when they do the things that we like. We can just be more strategic about when we're doing it. Another thing that we often do as humans is that we unintentionally reinforce behavior that we don't like because we don't realize that the way that we're responding is actually uh, making the something that will make the behavior stronger. So sometimes when we think we're scolding an animal and we think that we're being punitive to an animal, the animal is like, oh, I really got mom and dad's attention with that. Like that really worked well for me, you know, because like they were ignoring me before and now they're really paying attention to me. I think that's something that's often talked that we see about when children, when children act out that bit of attention is better than no attention. Right. Right. That's not to say to continue starving your animals of your attention. What that means is If your dog is barking, demand barking, and you want the demand barking to get worse, you want there to be more demand barking, look at them when they bark at you. Or they want you to throw that ball, right? And you you can't get them to shut up until you throw that ball. If you throw that ball, you're going to get more barking in the future. You may get an immediate cessation in that moment. But in for future behavior, and training is all about future behavior. It's not necessarily about behavior in this moment, but what behavior does the animal do more or less of in the future? And so when there's a lot of ways that we accidentally reinforce with eye contact, with talking to our animals, and I'm 100% guilty of this with my own cat. My cat, is an incessant demand meower now because from the early days of when I had her, I would always be like, she's telling me she needs something. And so I got to respond to her needs. And it's not that that's not true. I did have an awareness like for her whole life that I was doing this. I also think that it's impossible for us or nearly impossible for us as humans to never respond to demand behavior. It's just that we have to be conscious of the fact that when we respond to demand behavior, we get more demand behavior in the future. And so also that might make us want to think about anticipating our animal's needs before they have to demand it from us. So before the animal is so attention starved that they're demanding your attention, What if we give it at regular intervals so that they come to expect it in a specific context?
1: I love to think of the word as consequences, something that comes in a sequence like that word itself and not necessarily as punishment that has this idea of there's a wrong behavior, a bad behavior that I must stop now and forever. Right. And withdraw, withhold my love, my attention, good things from that behavior. But I love what you're bringing up with consequences of, yeah, like what what are the consequences that we can give animals, like dogs when they're barking or cats when they're meowing? We used to have cats who we trained them to wake us up at three in the morning and give them food. Right. (laughs) They would meow. And the first few times, the first thing we did was go to the bowl and put food in the bowl. Until years later, it occurred to us, what if we put food in the bowl before we go to bed?
0: Right. Cats are excellent human trainers. They've really mastered the art of getting humans to do things as they want them it's kind of the role reversal of which we usually think of pet ownership we want the animals to do what the humans want and we are often so ineffective at getting the cats to do what we want and then cats have become so masterful at getting humans to do what they want and it's often from that like lack of awareness of when we are creating Habits and structures that we're doing absentmindedly, and it's and it goes back to that whole thing of like cats are communicating to us all the time, and we are communicating to them all the time. It's just a lot of unintentional communication, yes. and and so when we start to turn our awareness and like turn it on, like oh, how are we affecting it? And I often, you know, going back to consequences, we spend. Most of us spend a lot of calories for no reason for our animals. We're just filling their bellies. We often give treats because to us, feeding animals is like a way of showing our love. And it's actually why we have a lot of obese animals, because we don't think we know another way. Our animals enjoy it so much, right? And so we just want to show them that we love them. We're so desperate to show them. And we don't really know how to, right? Because of that language barrier. We can say, I love you, but do they really know I love you? And so we often default to overfeeding them for free. Those calories are very valuable consequences. What if we take some of those calories and spend them on behaviors that we want to see more of? We don't have to restrict their calories or their eating. We just have to use what's already available to us. And the other thing is that we think that animals prefer free food because I think that this is kind of like another projection. Like, we like free food. You love going to work and your boss is like catered for your office or something. That feels like so nice, Mm -hmm. Uh, though really, animals, especially animals who live the companion life, they want enrichment. They want stimulation. And that's another thing that training provides is it significantly enriches your animal's life when they have to work for their food. Like we have come to romanticize this idea. And I don't know if it's like some like holdover from monarchies. We think of like royalty, you know, the really well-off people just have like these lives of luxury and they just sit around doing nothing and everything is done for them as if that's like something to aspire to. That's not a value that our pets generally have. They sleep a lot. Cats and dogs do sleep a lot and they need a lot more sleep than humans do. Though when they're awake, they want to be enriched and stimulated just like we do. Like we don't sit around all day, just literally doing nothing. Our version of doing nothing is at least like watching TV, and that's stimulation. Our cats and dogs don't usually, some of them do watch TV, but most of them do not perceive TV in the same way that we do. And so we have to come up with different ways of enriching their lives. And one of the ways we can do that is through training, through work-to-eat plans, food puzzles or Can they forage for their food? Because remember, cats and dogs have a lot of brain power to go find their own food, and they don't have to do that in the domestic lifestyle. So what are other ways that we can use that, capitalize on those natural behaviors to enrich their lives and get behaviors we want? One of the ways that I do that with my cat is a big known problem for cat owners getting your cat in their carrier to go to the vet or to you have to move house or go someplace else, right? So I've trained my cat that she has to go into her carrier to get fed. And it's a super easy behavior to train. It required zero stressful interventions. And the behavior is so strong that even after we get back from the vet, and I have subjected her to involuntary confinement, and she's been poked and prodded and taken to a place that is stressful because she doesn't want to be anywhere but my house. I open up that carrier, she comes out, and I ask her to go back in. She'll go right back in because she has that history of it being safe and a beneficial thing. And so even how powerful that aversive quality might be of the risk of confinement and transport and being at the vet is not more powerful than the strong reinforcement history we've built for her going into her carrier for her supper.
1: Thank you. That was so useful. What suggestions do you have for people who are just walking around with their dogs and Sometimes dogs get in, I don't know, it looks like fights or sometimes it looks like they're playing. Sometimes it looks like they're fighting. Someone gets upset. You're, the dog wants to go in some direction. There's another dog that kind of like looks a little scary.
0: Right. I always carry food with me when I walk dogs. You always have your poop bags with you when you walk a dog. Right. Always have the food with you and always have the food that is valuable enough to the dog that when they're outside in a stimulating environment, they will still care about it. Now, not all dogs are food motivated enough that that will always work, especially when they're already emotional. You always want to have some way to motivate the animal that you're working with. So I would say always be prepared in that regard, though. You know, in this situation, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. One of the least helpful things that we do when we're handling dogs, and I have 100% done this before I knew better, was we stop listening to our instincts and we allow ourselves to be swayed by what we think the social expectations are. So we think that the other person with their dog is expecting us to allow a dog-dog meeting on the sidewalk on short leashes. And we, especially if we're not experienced with handling dogs, often don't have the confidence to withdraw our consent for such an interaction. So I would encourage people to empower themselves to be agents of their own consent and agents of their dog's consent. If you're ever uncomfortable about a situation, increase distance. Turn around and walk away. Unless there's a dangerous situation, like there's cars zooming by in the street so you can't get in the street, there's not usually a reason why you can't go somewhere else. Sometimes it happens. Like I've definitely been in dangerous situations where I was handling a very reactive dog and I was trapped. I couldn't get away. And then I just had to do my best to kind of physically control. And it didn't matter that I had food. And I just had to do my best to physically control the dog so that everybody stayed safe. I didn't raise my voice. I didn't yell at anybody. I didn't jerk the dog around on the leash. I didn't hit the dog. None of those things are going to help they're only going to escalate and and make mm. the social tension and the emotions higher. And so if I can keep my cool and maintain my control of the situation, that's going to have the best results for everyone involved. And most of these scenarios only last like a couple of seconds, right? They're not really long. So if we can just control things for a few seconds until everyone's safe again then we can kind of get some space to reassess the other thing i'd say if you are giving that sense of listen my dog cannot control their emotions i can control my dog though like i can i can keep us all safe the other party is also gonna feel safer and if you're having the dog that's kind of like the, the subject of the reactivity, so that what we're talking about is what I've mentioned before is called reactivity. If the other dog is being reactive and your animal is this, is the subject, try to give that team as much space and grace and patience as you can. Because even if the owner is truly being obtuse and doing things that are making the situation worse, they also don't really know how to do any better. So doing what you can to, oh, you're trapped in that direction. I'll take my easygoing dog the other direction. And you can also communicate at a distance. Like, hey, my dog's unfriendly. Can you give us some space? Or I don't feel comfortable passing your dog right now. And make a request. Like, can you do this so that we can go by? I just had it walked a dog today where the other dog was, I had a reactive dog. This other dog looked too friendly. So I didn't think mm-hmm. that the other dog was going to go after my dog, but I was afraid that that other dog would approach my dog too closely. And then my dog would react to that. I had my dog sit at a somewhat close distance. So we were probably about 15 feet apart. And I fed that dog. And the other handler got the clue that he needed to make sure his dog was under control when we passed. And so I waited for him to get his dog controlled in a sit. And then once his dog was in a sit, the dog actually offered it down. And then I put a handful of chicken and freeze dried raw dog food in front of my dog's nose as we walked by and made sure that his nose was directly in my hand targeting that food. And we got by and there was zero incident. And it doesn't always work so cooperatively. It's not always happily ever after. Though if you are aware, um, one of my mentors once told me that walking a dog requires as much attention and awareness as driving a car. If you think about like, you shouldn't text and drive. You shouldn't read a book and drive. You can have a conversation with your friend, but don't take your eyes off the road. And like when things are (laughs) dicey, maybe you need to pause that conversation, right? So if you have enough awareness about what's going on for your dog and what's going on in the environment, you can get a lot further than if you are letting yourself be distracted. And I actually often think of dog walking as a mindfulness exercise. So Maybe you don't like doing a seated meditation. What if walking your dog was a form of meditation and being present in the moment, right? Yeah. And that helps your dog also feel seen. It helps your dog feel safe and it helps your long-term bond. And it's good for you to
1: have that presence, that one-mindedness. Benefits all around. I do have one last question. You offer a beautiful service, Shannon, of helping people understand when they're about to adopt an animal, Mm -hmm. when they want to adopt an animal, you offer this beautiful service of helping people understand what kind of animal would be best for them to adopt and what kind of animal would not be best for them to adopt. If there is like one little piece of advice that you can tell people before they adopt an animal? What would that be? And of course, we'll direct people to your information. But I just love that you have this service because I think it helps a lot of people to know these are the kind of dogs or the kind of cats that I could have where there could be that harmony and we could all have as you put it our best life. And These other animals, this environment would not be conducive for them to have that fulfilling life or for me to have that fulfilling life. So is there anything that you can tell us that maybe we don't think about? What do we need to think about before we adopt an animal? The best thing that you can do
0: to set yourself up for success for you and your future animal is to hire a professional behavior consultant or trainer before you get your animal and talk to them about your needs and what you're looking for and what your lifestyle is like. And this is not something that people think of doing. If you go to a rescue, they might have what they call adoption counselors. Their adoption counselors, much like breeders, are retailers of a product, right? And those are the animals in their care. And I know this because I used to be an adoption counselor. And even though In my heart, I wanted it to be a good connection. Ultimately, I wanted those animals out of the shelter and into homes. The adoption counselor or the breeder's primary interest is getting those animals into homes. The behavior consultant or trainer's interest is making sure that you are set up for success in the choice that you make. We are not interested in... Making sure that one rescue or one breeder's animals get into your home. We're interested in your success, your happiness, your ability to cohabitate with that animal or animals. And so I hope that this is something that we start to see more of as being a cultural norm because. I stay in business because I am the problem solver once the problems are already there. There are plenty of us out there who want to provide private adoption counseling to you so that you have all the tools that you need. You've identified your support network for when you acquire the animal so that everything's in place and so that when you bring the animal home, you get off on the right paw right away. Yeah.
1: Beautiful. Thank you so much. And how can people find you?
0: People can find me. I have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash domestic animal. And I also can be reached by email at shannon.e.bolt at gmail.com. And I'm happy to do remote consulting for most issues or find you a local professional in your area who can help support you. And then, of course, for people in San Francisco, I also provide in person training and walking and sitting services.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Shannon. Thank you for being who you are and doing language alchemy with animal owners and their animals and for saying yes to being a guest at the Language Alchemy podcast. Well, thank you for having me. And Alejandra, thank you for helping
0: me improve my communication with the human clients that I have. So, because that ultimately serves my mission as well for helping the animals because it's all part of that domestic animal family.
1: Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. May you communicate with your animals with clarity, confidence, and compassion. Until next week. And as we say in Argentina, want to say it with me? Ciao, ciao. 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 I will add Shannon's link in the show notes. Original music by Gary LaPoe. You can find all links in the show notes at languagealchemy.com.